You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. They were already sitting. You tell them. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Tish Warren. I'm a priest in this church, and I'm grateful this morning to get to speak to you about the unending love of God. The theme of the series that we've been walking through in Luke for these last several weeks, uh, we've been calling it How to Be a Disciple. And we talked about the Good Samaritan and um, how Jesus, Father Sean talked about this, the Good Samaritan, how Jesus is the Samaritan that comes and rescues us. And we talked about uh, Mary and Martha and how the point of Christian life is not just activism in itself, but is sitting with Mary at the feet of Jesus. And today we're talking about prayer. And it starts, our passage starts with finding Jesus alone, praying. And we see this rhythm throughout Luke. If you read throughout Luke, you'll notice that we see this rhythm of Jesus being in intense times of public ministry, healing around the crowds, um, really pouring out. And then he withdraws to a mountainside, but in places of solitude and in prayer. So it's this rhythm, like the wave, like the high tide, low tide of, of ministry, community, and then withdrawing to prayer. And so we find him in this time of prayer. And one of his disciples sees him praying and says, Teach us to pray. So I want to back up and ask, What is the point of this series? Which the larger question there is, what is the point of discipleship? Is it to check off religious boxes, like be good to your neighbor? Check. Incorporate the balance of activity and contemplation? Check. This week, prayer time? Check. If you grew up in a youth group like mine, quiet times? Check. That's like the whole of the Christian life. So, um, and all of those things are really important. I'm grateful that I've learned about prayer. I'm grateful for um, teaching and discipleship. But the point of this series is, is not that we would have a religious checkbox to stuff our over-busy lives with more stuff that we're doing to justify ourselves before God. That is not the point. There's five pillars of Islam that all righteous Muslims are required to do as that's part of being a good Muslim and to to be righteous before God. What this series is not about is giving you five pillars of Anglicanism or five pillars of Christianity. Things we want you to go and do so that you could be righteous before God. So what is this about? If that's what it's not about, what is it about? The telos, that means the end of discipleship, 
um, is talked about in John 17, and I'm just going to read it. He's, it says, now this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus does not define eternal life by doing lots of good stuff or by getting to heaven, even. Eternal life is knowing God. So what is discipleship about? It's about living into eternity by knowing God, by coming to know the goodness, the mercy, the grace, the character of God in greater and greater intimacy. And we should say from the outset in, in this whole series that this is by grace and this is entirely because of the work of Jesus. He has won this for us that we may know God and he whom God has sent. And Jesus, in his grace, in his pouring out of himself to us, gives us the gift of prayer, and he teaches us to pray. Prayer, which is the part of discipleship that we're looking at today, at its root is a way that we can come to know God more deeply, to attach ourselves to God, the way that a baby might attach herself to her mom and dad. And God loves us in Christ regardless of how good or bad we are in prayer, how well we do it, how disciplined we are, but we come to know him and drink in his love and respond to his love through this gift of prayer. So when the disciples ask Jesus to teach him to pray, Jesus doesn't say, I don't know, figure it out. And he doesn't say, just say whatever comes to mind, or he doesn't say like, you need to get, you need to use your spiritual voice for prayer. You guys know what I'm talking about. The prayer voice. Jesus doesn't give them a prayer voice. He, um, he gives them a model or a pattern of prayer, which we're going to see in the Lord's Prayer. And why does he do this? Because he wants us to know God. So first thing to note is this prayer that you heard this morning in Luke is a little bit different than Matthew's version, which is the typical version we say. So don't get nervous. We're not saying it wrong. Um, we see even in these differences that the point of this teaching isn't that we would recite exact words, words for word for word, although that's okay to do, but that this is a model or pattern of prayer that we can take in the whole into the whole of our prayer lives. So let's walk through um, that prayer together and look somewhat of what it models and what it patterns. So it begins, Father, which in and of itself, you guys know, is, could be its own sermon. We could just stop at Father for a good many weeks. But Jesus tells us to call God Father. And that is a term of one who loves us, of one who longs for us to know him, it's a word of intimacy and love and yet still authority and power. And I know that there are folks here who have no relationship with their father or a really rough relationship with their father. But even in that, even for 
us who have a strained relationship with our dad, which to some extent is probably all of us, there is this longing, this deep intuition of what it is to have a loving father, to have a father that approves of us and knows us. And that's something deep in us that we long for. And that is defined by the fatherhood of God. He is the perfect father that shows us what fatherhood is ultimately supposed to be. Second part, hallowed be thy name. He, the word hallowed means set apart or exalted and worshipped. And name is not just his literal name, but it means character or the whole person of God. So he's asking for God's worship in all the earth. Thy kingdom come. He's asking for God's reign and way on earth. And don't we want that this morning with the rough month we've had of violence in America, of authority misused, of of people victimizing other people, of um, horrible violence we've seen globally in the world. Don't we long to say, God, we want your kingdom a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice. And in Matthew's version, it says, thy will be done. And it doesn't in Luke's. But it's much the same thing because the definition of God's kingdom is the place (laughs) where God's will is perfectly done. So when we're praying for God's kingdom, we're praying for the place of God's perfect will. Give us this day our daily bread. This is somewhat of the, well, the most straightforward to me because it's what I most easily pray. <laughs> and it's God, help us. We are needy. Every day we are needy and we need you to provide for us and meet our needs. And this isn't just about bread. It's about the whole of what we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That doesn't mean that God is keeping tabs of some kind of forgiveness meter and forgiving us only to the extent that we measure up on the forgiveness meter to others. But it does mean that receiving the gift of God's forgiveness, knowing how truly and deeply we have been forgiven and for how much, means that we, if we really believe that, will extend forgiveness to others. And if we refuse to extend forgiveness to others, we are callousing our hearts to receive the forgiveness that God has to offer us. And lead us not to temptation. This also acknowledges that we're needing. And it's asking God to keep us from temptation that's too great for us. And in this, there's an acknowledgement that sin will destroy us. That we are weak and we're not, we're not strong enough to guard against sin on our own. That it will emaciate us and empty us out. And it's asking God to keep us from something that is too great that will send us to our destruction. The psalmist prays this constantly throughout the psalms. He's constantly saying, keep my feet from stumbling. Keep me from falling. And this is much the same prayer as that. And then right there, boom, Jesus ends. And then he turns, without a beat it seems, to these weird stories, to these strange metaphors. It's the Lord's Prayer that 
we're going to do for thousands of years of a church. And then he stops it and he's like, let me give you a weird metaphor. And so, <laughs> so what I want to suggest is that it isn't, isn't Jesus just being random or Luke reporting things randomly, but that, um, that that model prayer with these stories reveals not just a way of prayer, not just a pattern or a model of prayer, but the very heart of prayer. And in these stories, Jesus is showing us first the model of prayer and then the heart of prayer. So today we're going to talk a little bit about that heart of prayer. And we're going to talk about the heart of prayer being first, desperation, second, delight, and third, knowing God. And I'm sorry that I didn't get the three D's um, alliteration. <laughs> I grew up Baptist, so I got the two D's, but then I became Anglican, so I didn't get to carry it the whole way. Um, so sorry about that. Um, but the first story is about a guy who asks his neighbor for help. And what does the story have to do with prayer? Something to know about this passage as we're looking at it is that in the ancient world, hospitality was a really big deal. So if you had someone show up at your house needing hospitality and you couldn't give it, that, wasn't a, that was a failure of the law, literally a failure of the law. And not just something that would give you kind of a side eye, a little bit of judgment, or a like, bad Yelp review, but was completely culturally anathema. This was a big deal not to fail at hospitality. This week, um, on Tuesday night, John, well, I should back up. Jonathan, <laughs> a few weeks ago, made dinner plans with some friends of ours. And then he forgot them. And then I don't, we're not sure if he told me and I also forgot them or if I was never told. But the jury's still out on that one. But it, whatever, ha whatever the case, Tuesday night we were hanging out, no plans for the evening, going to make some dinner, read a book. And then knock, 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 our friends Stephen and Bethany showed up and they were there for dinner. And <laughs> Okay, like, do we tell them we forgot? Like, there, which we did. Like, there's this moment, how does one handle this situation? And then, and I'm thinking, do we have enough food? Is our toilet flushed? Is our house messy? Do we have clean forks? Like, this is where I'm going. And that moment of panic that I felt in a culture where hospitality is way less valued than in the ancient Near East, and where if push came to shove, we could have run to the HEB and the Quick Mart and gotten some appetizers and some, like a case of beer. Like, but even in that, I felt a little bit of panic, you know? So how much more for this man uh, when his neighbor shows up and he has nothing to give him? He couldn't just run down and pick up something. He needed help. And the panic that I felt, a little bit of panic, which it ended up being a lovely night. Stephen and Bethany are dear friends of ours, so they just laughed at us, and we went on. <laughs> and it was great, and it was really fun. But, um, but that little bit of panic I felt, how much more, how much more desperate does this man feel? In the middle of the night, 
no H-E-B, and it's absolutely crucial to who he is and where he stands in his community. So he went and asked his neighbor. And the implication of this story from all the scholars I read is that everyone would assume, of course, a neighbor would help him in this situation. The situation described here is um, apparently in the uh, ancient Near East, the man was likely lay, sleeping on the floor with his children all around him, so co-sleeping on the floor. And um, if he had gotten up in the middle of the night to respond to his friend, getting up in the middle of the night and having to unlatch the door would surely wake up all of his children. And as a mom of young kids, I so identify with this neighbor being like, whatever you do, don't wake the children. Like any amount of effort, just don't wake the kids. It took them forever to go to sleep. But even what Jesus says is, even if he isn't motivated by love for his neighbor, he would get up if his neighbor kept calling. His neighbor kept knocking. The man was pretty desperate to not wake up his kids, but he saw that his neighbor was more desperate than him. And Jesus says, even if you won't come out of friendship, you'll respond out to persistence, to desperation. And this is my first point about the heart of prayer, that we come to God desperate. We need to know this desperation. We need to know how much we need him, how much our souls are made to know him, how much we will truly be restless until we rest in him. Like the psalmist says, as the deer pants for water, so our soul pants for you. That kind of thirsting for God. This man would have needed, um, in order to go to his neighbor, to acknowledge that he didn't have enough food on his own. He couldn't front. He couldn't pretend. He had to acknowledge his own deficiency to go to his neighbor in that kind of desperation. And this reminds us that we never recite the Lord's Prayer or other prayer merely as rote words. And that doesn't mean, I want to be clear here, that we have to have some kind of massive emotional experience every time we pray, or that we have to like work ourselves up. But neither did the neighbor come asking for help with some kind of glib help requested form. You know, and he didn't stand outside his neighbor's house mumbling, like, hey, I kind of need help, but mostly I'm okay, but maybe you could help me, like, whatever, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then leave. He needed help, and he acknowledged it, and he wasn't leaving until he got it. He had a real need, and he knew his friend could and would help him. And this is how we approach God, in deep need, knowing that God can and will meet us. And just in case this story makes us think that Jesus is kind of annoyed and begrudgingly giving us what we want because we won't leave him alone, Jesus tells another story, or another metaphor. And this also tells us something, the second metaphor about the heart of prayer. So in our family, we have something called the yes, not yes. That's what I've come to call it. And this is the yet not, yes, not yes. It's when you really don't want to say yes to the person who's asking you. But because they are persistent and you get annoyed enough, you say yes. So the way this works is if 
our children who are not in the room, which might be good for this, come and are asking for cartoons. And I don't really want to give them cartoons, but they ask and they ask and they ask. I say, ah, yes, fine, you can have cartoons. Or if Jonathan asks to go to the gym and I really want him home with us, but I'll be like, okay, you can go. Which he knows means don't go. And so, <laughs> I do not recommend it, and you should not do it. But it occasionally happens in our house, and we've come to call it the yes, not yes. Where you're saying yes, and you're agreeing to something, but in your heart of hearts, you're just going because you're kind of annoyed with the person. And we can kind of approach God thinking that, his, that he is answering us in prayer as yes, not yes. Like, ugh. And this story blows that apart, that we cannot come to God that way. Jesus does not answer us, yes, not yes, because, because if children are persistent, that does not mean that their parents love them well always. But God is the perfect parent, and he loves us perfectly, even lavishly. So he says, is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to good give, how to Give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Here Jesus is telling us that God wants to give good gifts to his children. And this is my second point about the heart of prayer. It's not just that we're desperate. But prayer depends on God's heart. And that heart is a heart that beats with love for his children. God longs to give us good things, better things than we could ask for. And we who are evil still want to give good gifts to our children. My dad, who I've told some of you all about, is, um, he's a real Texan, gruff guy, big football player, um, and he never cries. And um, he's really funny and like gregarious, but he does cry. He's not a crier. I got all the criers in his arm. So, um, but a few years ago, when laptops were a new thing, my sister and I were both in situations where we needed a laptop. I was just getting out of college, looking for jobs. My sister was going through a hard time. She needed one. And my father grew up really poor. And um, one Christmas, he gave us both a box. And we had no idea. We, had, we didn't ask for anything. We didn't know what it was. And he told us to open it at the same time. We open it up, and it's two new laptops, one for me and one for my sister. And we freak out. Like, people freak out on commercials, but you rarely see in real life. You know, when you get a new gift, and you're like, oh my gosh. That's what we were doing. And I looked over at my dad, and he had, real quickly, a tear running down his eye. And he wiped it away before anyone could see. But I saw. <laughs> Why did my dad do that? He never cries. He did that because he loves his girls. He loves his children. And he loves being able to provide for us. That was something he dreamed of his whole life, is providing for his kids, and it was something he was able to do. God loves us more than that. God weeps over us receiving good gifts. But even good parents, even great parents, are evil is what Jesus is saying. How much more does God love to provide for his kids? 
God does not say yes, not yes. He sent his only son to us that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Just yes. And lastly, what gift does God give in this passage? Do you see? It says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? He gives the Holy Spirit. That's the gift. Let us not fall into some kind of belief that this is some kind of ecstatic experience or second baptism. In Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And walking in that spirit, we come to know God in intimacy and in repentance and in reality in our lives, in the dailiness of life. And this brings us back full circle to the point I made about what the point of discipleship is a few minutes ago. It is really good to ask God to provide for us. It's good to ask him for what we want, and it's good to ask him for what we need. It's good to ask him for healing, and he is faithful. But ultimately what we need from God is not what we want or not healing. It's God himself. What we need from God is what John 17 talks about, that we could know him the only true God, and Jesus Christ who we need He is the giver of all good things. And so ask for your daily bread. He tells us to ask for daily bread. Ask for deliverance from temptation. But ultimately what our hearts long for is his kingdom, where he is perfectly worshipped, and to be able to know him and call him Father. Jesus teaches us this model of prayer so that we can pray out of a place of desperation to a Father that delights in answering our prayers and who gives us the gift of himself that we may know God. Let's take a minute and ask the Lord to speak to us now. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.